Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 89. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, we haven't had a Drabble story in a while, and this is the Drabblecast. How about a quick 100-word story? This week's Drabble is called Please Allow the Door to Close by John Madai. John's work has been published in Scholastic Magazine, Pseudopod, and he has work forthcoming in Atomic Jack, The Three-Lobed Burning Eye, and the audio fiction magazine, Dune Steef. The elevator lurches, stopping between five and six. We try to call for help on cell phones, but all we get is an elfin lady's voice saying, We are sorry, the world is down. The steel feels warm. Mr. Fenton takes the food, a power bar and some orange Tic Tacs, and he decides who gets what. Somehow a fly gets in. Cheryl won't stop screaming. She's wasting our oxygen. Neil says all the women are his. We divide the right side from the left. Only good people are allowed on the left. When the lights flicker, dead, we go hunting in the dark. Our feature story is a little bit longer than usual, but I think you're going to like it. It's called Starry Night by Samantha Henderson. Samantha lives in Southern California. Her fiction and poetry have been published in Realms of Fantasy, Strange Horizons, Helix, and Lone Star Stories, and her first novel, Heaven's Bones, a dark Victorian fantasy, was released September of this year. So without further ado, Starry Night by Samantha Henderson. At the crest of the last foothill, I stopped and rubbed at my left shoulder, where the pack's strap bit. Shadows lay like dregs of wine in the valley below. I shifted the walking stick back to my right hand and limped towards the village. This was a job for a younger man. Mont Verdu was a hamlet of 300 souls, at least last census time. Whitewashed cottages and their moss-green roofs sat at odd angles to each other. A few had smoke curling from their chimneys. In the center squatted the great white church, like a mother cat between her kits. But no bells rang the hours this afternoon.
But two nights before, the bells of Montverdu clamored. Not in the ringing speech which villages use to call for help or give warning over these hills, but in a wild jangle. Then they stopped and were heard no more. So here I was, halting down a wet, grassy slope. The common fields stretched, following local custom, east of the village. Two small figures bent in the furrows, digging the last of the season's turnips. I limped toward them, and one rose. The other remained at her work. Two children, girls, clad in grubby white. I could see no one else in the fields or in the distant streets of the village. The younger, standing, looked to be about seven. The other, still a child but at the cusp of womanhood, remained crouching in the furrow, but raised her head and folded dirty hands in her lap. The basket by her side was full of turnips. Their eyes were yellow as pale topazes, and they stared at me without blinking. I cleared my throat. <clears throat> I am Brune de Finu, from the village of Hirsch, I said to the eldest. I am the magistery for this district. They ducked their heads briefly in response. I wondered if either knew what a district was. I've come to find out about the night two days ago. The night of the stars. No response, save that the elder child pursed her lips. Two nights ago, the bells had rung, and the skies over Montverdu boiled with light. Great yellow coils in the dark blue sky, like thick ropes of oil paint. The moon shivered, the full autumn moon, without its springtime mate. But the skies were brighter, even than the two-moon season, brighter than second spring. It looked like an exhibition of sky fire, such as the emperor's court gives at darkest Yule. The next day, the courier didn't come from Montverdu. On the next, I knew I must go and make my report. The night of the stars, I repeated, louder this time. Do you remember? I wondered if they were simple. The youngest looked at the eldest, who tossed the turnip in her lap into the basket before rising. Come to our house, Magisteri, she said in a high, clear voice, and you will see. She gathered the basket to her hip and turned away without looking to see if I would follow. The younger girl trotted by her side. To give her credit, she did appear to slow her pace to compensate for my limp. The communal fields ended short of the village proper, making way for tidy little gardens of daisies and hoosier darling. Many were mulched for winter. Here and there I saw the flicker of a small figure and a few dogs slunk between doorways. So far, I had seen no adults. I followed the girls to a trim cottage with a wooden door, painted blue. The oldest shouldered it open and went inside. The younger held it open and nodded for me to go first. It was a double-room dwelling typical of these parts, kitchen and public areas with a sleeping chamber, probably partitioned with cotton sheets. The elder girl dropped her basket on the wooden trestle table and faced me, smoothing her skirt. I stood and waited. It began at dusk, she said, speaking too quickly. But you saw. 
the sky was filled with burning gold. At first, I thought it was a swarm of shooting stars, such as those that come at midsummer. Then I was afraid, because I thought the hills were burning. She paused, and I interrupted her. What is your name, child? She looked startled, then blushed a deep pink and dropped a curtsy. I am Griselda de Capri, Magistery, she said, and you are welcome in our house. She indicated one of the two crude chairs at the trestle table, and I sat, grateful to take the weight off my bad hip. Thank you, Griselda de Capri, I said. The small formality seemed to calm her. We all went outside, she said. Mama and Papa and Bo here, she nodded at her sister. And Larry, my brother, he's the oldest. He was, she swallowed. Mama thought it was a hill fire too, but then we saw no smell or sight of smoke. Everyone came out of their houses to watch. It was beautiful, like festival time. Then the angels came down. Angels? I leaned forward in the hard chair. You must be mistaken, child. The set of her chin was determined. I heard a noise behind me and turned to see that several other children, three or four perhaps, had crept inside the door. They were angels, Griselda stated flatly. They were dressed in white. They had great golden wings. Their faces blazed so you could not look at them. What else could they be but angels? I was watching the other children. One, a boy with a dirty freckled face, nodded. It's true, he said. They were angels come down from heaven. I stared at them all, not because of what the boy had said, but because they all had the same pale topaz eyes of the two sisters. All of them, fair, dark, obviously unrelated. Eyes like rare Tokay wine. At first they were specks in the sky, like sparks from a fire, continued Griselda. But they grew bigger and they floated, flew, said the boy, and Griselda gave him a withering look. Floated down to us. We should have been afraid, but they were glorious, like the stained glass pictures in the church. One came to our house, to our door. Mama opened it to let the angel in. At the door, more children had gathered. Some were older and held babies in their arms. There could be none over 15 years old. Did the angel hurt you, Griselda? I asked, and the children gathered at the door started to whisper between themselves. Where are your mother and father? She glanced past me at the others. When the angel came inside, it floated like it didn't have any feet. It was as bright as the sun, so bright I couldn't look at it. When I turned back, Mama and Papa and Larry, her voice faltered. They were burning. I looked around the main room. There was no sign or smell of smoke, no charred wood. Burning, Griselda? I don't understand. Her eyes brimmed. They were burning, 
but the flames were going in, not out. They were frozen in place, and their bodies blazed. The angel was before them, and they were silent, burning with no heat. I looked at the other children. Some nodded solemnly, and others just stared. The grubby, freckled boy spoke up. It's true, Magistery. For a while, there was silence as I digested this. There was a tug at my shirt, and I looked down to see Griselda's little sister. Bo, Griselda reminded me. She hasn't spoken since it happened. Bo's yellowed smock had a pocket, smudged gray. She reached in and brought out something in her small paw, holding it out to me. It was a rounded, smooth pebble, grass green, like a bit of slag from the glassblower's forge. Carefully, I picked it up. It was heavier than glass and warm in my hand. It's Mama, said Griselda. Bo's been carrying it around since that night. I looked again at the pebble, and knowledge half-remembered fell into place. It was an uncut emerald, big as a quail's egg. This is your mother? After the burning, this is what was left. She took a small, hand-hewn wooden box from the countertop and handed it to me. That's Papa and Larry. I didn't know what to do with them. Bo likes to keep Mama with her. Bo carefully took the emerald back from me and returned it to her pocket, keeping it balled up in her fist. I took the crude box from Griselda. Inside, laying on a rough piece of cloth, were two more uncut gems. A bulbous ruby and a small star sapphire. Papa's the red one, and Larry's the blue. I think... I touched the gems, and something gray and gritty coated my finger. Ash. Angels. In my head, I began to compose my report to the Grand Magistery. Angels have consumed the adult population of Montverdu in holy cold flame, leaving behind gemstones and yellow-eyed children. Truly a thing of wonder. The children at the door had ventured further inside. A few held out more uncut gems in their work-roughened hands. Beryl, amethyst, tourmaline. Mother, father, great aunt Ricky. Griselda continued. Then they spoke to us. They told us not to be afraid, that they would protect us, that we should wear white and pray. She looked at her dirt-rimmed fingernails and that we must bring in the last of the harvest against the winter, afterwards, in spring. And then she saw the adult in me, the sin in me, perhaps, and her yellow eyes went wide, and she shut her lips tight. All the adults, your parents and elders, they all burned? I addressed the room at large, closing the box's lid. Griselda took it from me. The freckled boy piped up. Amu's simple didn't burn up, and she has a baby and all. She is alive? I must speak to her. I started to rise, feeling the bad hip grind beneath me. An adult could give me an account for my report. I could begin to tell the truth of the matter. Well, suddenly uncertain, the boy looked at the others for support. 
You must come and see. She doesn't always speak. The little rabble agreed with childish piping, and I was pulled to my feet by many small hands, groping on the way for my walking stick. I must make the dinner, said Griselda, not looking at me. It's my turn. As the rabble of children pulled me through the streets, I looked again, vainly, for the butcher and the women in their aprons, the blacksmith in his shop. It could not be that they were all gone, but beside the children, only a few dogs slunk around, looking dazed. The girl in the tiny hut at the edge of the town was leaning over a cradle when we pushed through her door. She didn't seem alarmed at the sudden noise or the resounded shouts of, Amu! Amu simple! As she turned to me, with a vacant, gentle smile on her lips, I fought to suppress a start. As a boy, I used to climb with the others at the Frias Peak. Sometimes we found balls of bubbled rock, which, upon being cracked apart, would prove to be hollows full of crystal. Those were her eyes. The sockets were two cups filled with crystal shards. Blindly, she felt around inside the cradle, still with that empty smile, and I saw that Simple was not her family name. She must be about seventeen. Greetings, maiden, I said, gently as I could. I am the magistery from the next village, and I've come to find out what happened two nights ago. But haven't they told you? Her voice was clear and childlike. About the angels? Yes, but you too? You saw them? I did, she said. For a while I saw great light and brightness on my face, and then I saw nothing at all. I can't find my mother since, and Niels has tried to explain, but I do not understand. Carefully she felt around in the cradle and gathered up the baby, a fat, healthy child. It stared at me, and I was relieved to see it had normal, bright blue eyes. It turned away with a grumble and chewed on its mother's shoulder. He is hungry, she said. I will bring you dinner, said the freckled boy, whom I took to be Niels, in an hour or so. She nodded and began to undo her front laces. I averted my gaze. Did these angels say anything to you? I said, backing towards the door. Only that we must take care of each other. They said more, but that's all I understood. Outside, I asked Niels, Who is the father of her child? The boy looked uncomfortable. One day, she was out picking berries and came home confused and crying with a torn dress and a bruised cheek. Soon after that, her belly grew. She never said who hurt her, although her mother beat her a few times. He shrugged. She's always been simple. Is she your sister? No, he said firmly. Then in a lower voice, The baby's eyes. They look like my older brother's. I nodded. I see. I will take care of her. I would have replied, but he was not talking to me. I compose my report in my head, hiking as fast as I can across the hills. I still cannot decide if I should mention the angels. 
takes me the rest of the day to reach the base of Frias Peak, and I wonder if boys still find those round stones, or if we shattered them all in my youth. I used to know what they were called. Once I was an educated man, a scholar living in the Emperor's city. Now I wonder if that city lies in ruins, and our villages send couriers running round the mountaintops, around a dead center, rotten and dying, dried up to nothing. My hip has stiffened badly, so it is breaking dusk by the time I'm in sight of home. As I descend the slopes where our common fields lie, I see that the skies are beginning to boil with yellow light. I hasten, ignoring the pain. I can see that some have gathered in their doorways, eyes wide in wonder, watching the stars. I see the priest in the doorway of the church and pause, then pass on. Who am I, after all, to lecture anyone about angels? Madame, my wife, is in the doorway. I can smell her good stew. She's already put the children to bed, but I see them spying in their doorway, and I bid them to come out and see. Without explaining why, I kiss them on their foreheads and lead them outside. In the streets, there is fear, yes, but also a festival air. I take my wife's hand, rough but with a moist palm. I wonder what trace of sin will stain the gems that we will become. Purple for arrogance, red for lust, yellow for greed. We lean together in the doorway, watching the sky swirl, the moon in her victory dance, waiting for the angels to come. that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. You know, I can relate to Amu Simple. I've been walking around blind with pink eye the last couple days, and also waking up with crystals in my eyes. Yuck. Anyways, let's catch up on story feedback, shall we? A few weeks ago, we ran our first double header, featuring two flash pieces by award-winning author Michael Swanwick, Hush and Hark, and Metascience Fiction. Rich Mazur said, Dear Lord, Hush and Hark, the story, production, and perfect reading was maybe one of the most chilling things I've ever heard. I was taking a walk on a cold October evening while listening and was terrified. Aquarello said, Hush and Hark was a bit too dramatic for my tastes. Meta science fiction made me smile, probably because I faced that blank sheet of paper in a deadline so many times, but lacked the imagination and confidence to produce something quite so wonderfully awful. Bravo. Mr. Tweedy's wife, uh, Mrs. Tweedy, said Hush and Hark was not her cup of tea. She thought the beginning was creepy, but lost interest when the husband showed up. He was just too bad to take seriously. It reminded her of Lovecraftian, it was too horrible to describe, but let me describe it anyway, writing, and she's never enjoyed that style. Meta science fiction, though, she loved without reservations. She testifies that she laughed out louded several times during its short length. She also commented that the time traveler in love with herself story was so outrageously stupid that she laughed even before she realized that the whole thing was a satire. Two thumbs up for Mrs. Tweedy. The next week we ran Trifecta number 5, The Love Special, with Strange Love by Susan Vincent, Cookie by Jim Bernheimer, and Forbidden Love by Ian Fosberg. Overall, people seem to think this trifecta was pretty good, but not the best. Algernon Sidney is Dead said, Rape by Tattoo, Demonic Toys, 
fresh skunk meat. What's not to enjoy? The first story was very original, the second was a good variation on standard themes, the third was inconsequential but enjoyable. Kevin Anderson said, The first one, Strange Love, kind of made me want to take a shower after listening. Not sure why, but I did. The second one, Cookie, reminded me of my daughter's imaginary friend who seemed to disappear last year. Her name was Shadow, and the fact that she had an imaginary friend was not creepy, but all the strange details my daughter would tell us about Shadow seemed a bit off, like how Shadow was sad because she had a miscarriage. Golden Rat said, I liked Cookie. The other two, not so much. Pepe Le Pew was my least favorite Looney Tunes character. In fact, I hated that smelly son of a bitch. Yeah, we've got some weird listeners in the forums. But presumably you folks like us okay, and we hope that if you do, you'll consider throwing a donation our way via the buttons on our website, www.drabblecast.org. You can use your credit card or PayPal account to donate either once or subscribe for a measly five bucks a month. We pay our authors for their work. Actually, ideally, you listeners do. We just repackage it into audio, free of charge. If you'd like to share this week's episode, feel free to do so. Just don't change it or sell it. Our content is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license, which means, yeah, you can share it, you just can't change it or sell it. Tune in next week for some more weird shit. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that it's flu, not floated. And the bartender shouts last round An hour ago this place was loaded And noise filled the room like the smoke And laughter and curses spilled like booze from a glass Words were all slurred when spoke Yes, words were all slurred when slurred Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.